The 212 Podcast here. We are back for another episode to get into those subdued and relaxed eardrums. We have a guest today who is one of the lead singers of a multi-award winning US band. They won two Grammy Awards in 1993 for Best New Artist, making them the first hip-hop artist to win this award and Best Rap Performance by Duo or Group. They also won Band of the Year uh, by Rolling Stone and their debut album sold over 6 million copies worldwide. He had his own successful solo career as well as other side projects as well that we'll get into as we go through the episode. Today we give this uh, presented envelopment during an increased arrest development during this contested experiment that we are all in. Yes, I did just do a rhyme in front of a rapper and I'm very, very sorry for it. Uh, here he is. It's Speech from Arrested Development. How are you and where are you today, Speech? I'm doing great. And I am in Atlanta, Georgia, really Fayetteville, Georgia, which is right outside of Atlanta in the countryside. Atlanta is... I don't, I don't know what about it that, that, I mean, we were talking about this the other day with someone from Texas, but Atlanta's another one that just seems to just produce rappers or hip hop artists or just musicians in general. Yeah. I mean, I think it has become that. I think it's become by far the most prolific musical place for hip hop for quite a while, but it didn't start off that way in hip hop. It has become that though. Talking about hip hop, starting with your name, Speech. I mean, Speech, who became a musician, is that a real name or is that just kind of fate that you've got that? No, it definitely came about over time. You know, I used to be a DJ and they call me DJ Peach and my head is quite large. <laughs> and so <laughs> it reminded people of the fruit of Peach. And um, then when I started rhyming instead of DJing, I wanted a different name. I didn't want to be called DJ Peach. I mean, uh, MC Peach. So I put an S in front of it and it just made sense to me. Like now I'm rhyming. Let me call myself speech. Let you know, and then just create this whole nother persona for myself. And it really stuck. And that was, gosh, like, I don't know, 35, 37 years ago, something like that. That's awesome. And I, I, and I feel like people do do that as well, you know, to create the alter ego for the for the entertainment, you know? Right. Exactly. I mean, and I mean, in hip hop, that's very common. You know what I mean? Like you usually have a rap name or something like that. And and so, like I said, I mean, for me, I knew enough to know that MC Peach wasn't going to be really fly and I didn't want that name. And so I was like, well, let me call myself speech. And um yeah, it just made sense to me. Love it. I want to just take you back as well, and, and I'm not sure even if Atlanta is is kind of where you grew up, but I, I wonder where you did grow up and, and, and how you got into music. Uh, was it kind of seamlessly? Yeah, it was because um, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and my dad is an entrepreneur, and so he used to own a lot of things from, like, gas stations, then he would close that down, he'd start owning yeah, diners and like restaurants, close that down. Then he started a club. And at the club, I was listening to all of this music and just being influenced by the DJ, you know, and it, it made me want to get into that. I saw the power of the DJ and I was like, man, that's the pop. That's the kind of power I want to have. I want to move people. I want to, you know, make people that's feeling depressed and feeling down. I want to do something musically that makes them 
have a totally different attitude change. And so that's why I wanted to go into music. And that's that. That's weird because you had the two options, really, if you were looking up to your dad from an entrepreneurial point of view, but you were looking at the music as well. So you, you've kind of done both, really, haven't you? Definitely. I mean, I still carry on the whole entrepreneur thing because, like, I've started numerous businesses on my own, whether it be a production company where, you know, I would bring artists like Erica Badu or Outkast, Goody Mob, Farside, Fishbone, you know, you name it. Just so many different artists would, you know, Ben Harper, all of these artists would come through Atlanta through my production company. And then also I would produce artists, just, you know, releasing music and then doing some other business things too. So all of those things sort of came from my dad as far as the entrepreneurial spirit. But I will say my style of emceeing really comes from my mom because my mom started a newspaper about 45 years ago. And I was only seven years old when she started it. But one of the things being in a newspaper publisher's house, you know, growing up in that kind of house, one of the things I learned was that you should put out information to people like information is vital. It's very important and people need information. And not only that, whether it's popular to put that information out or not, there needs to be a record of what's going on at any given moment in human life. And newspapers do that. And so for me as a lyricist, I wanted to do that. Like I wanted to put out a record of what's going on. And so, yeah, all, my parents definitely had a big influence on me in a lot of ways. And it sounds like from two different angles as well, one with the totally. live music venue and then the other with, with the journalism and the, the writing. Exactly. And, you know, it's very true. And it's funny about my parents because they really work well with each other, even though they're, they were divorced ever since I was 10 years old, but they still work well with each other. So my dad would help my mom and her newspaper and she would help him, even if they were not romantically involved anymore. Like, and so it's really, I don't know, that really helped me as far as having a group entity and like the whole vibe of Arrested Development, this family energy I think seeing their life and how they decided to do things had a lot of influence on how I wanted to do stuff. And you'd argue, actually, probably a lot of couples could probably do with being like that as well, instead of the bitterness that you, you do get some from, from family splits. Without a doubt. I mean, I'm really proud of what they accomplished, and it does help me. Like, I've been married now for 25 years, and, you know. Get it right if she's near you. I know. <laughs> it's 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 been a like a journey that I don't think I would have been able to do without having them as a great role model of just being able to work together even when they're having some issues. So me and my queen, we've been able to work together, but we're still married and we're still madly in love with each other. But it's but I still learned a lot from that. You know, was music you you kind of? I mean, you said there that. Obviously, from a young age, you you had that to look up to. But was was music your kind of main focus? Were you playing sports at school as well, or music was just a thing that you were really wanting? No, unfortunately, I was pretty stuck on music. I did run track. I you know, 
you know, I played sports just for fun on the playground when I was young and stuff like that, but never was very serious about, you know, sports. I was more so the odd kid that was always making beats. And when rap came out for the first time, like, you know, Rapper's Delight, for instance, in 79, I think it was, you know, I was the one that was just studying the music and just wanting to be in that world more so than play sports and be the jock, you know. So, yeah, I was pretty single-minded in that sense. What was it like growing up in the area that you grew up in? It was beautiful and terrifying. The beautiful part was it was a middle-class, like my house was in a middle-class neighborhood. We were the only black family there, though. So the neighborhood was gorgeous, very green grass, very beautiful parks nearby, middle-class world, secure. But I was born in 68, 1968. It was the same year that Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. So the racial tension was much worse outwardly than than it even is now. And so there was a lot of violence towards me and my family. Gangs back in those days would come to our house, would spray paint the doors with swastikas and um, would smash our windows and take our furniture and put it on top of our roof, would beat us up. I mean, gangs would, you know, slam our head into the concrete. I mean, it was very, very horrible, very violent. But the neighborhood itself looked beautiful. So it was one of those, you know, irony, ironic realities. And I'm assuming this wasn't happening to every house in your neighborhood. No, no, this was just us. This was because we were black. That was it, because we were black in an all-white neighborhood. Did, did you, I mean, you, you must have felt the, the difference in the neighborhood, not just because you were physically, the, the physical abuse or the, the kind of torment that you're having, but just, I mean, you must, it, it must have felt different being, I mean, you said that you were the only black family in that, in that neighborhood. That must have, you must have felt different growing up as well. Well, I was made to feel different, you know, because, you know, when you're young, you don't want to focus on, being the only black. To me, I just wanted to be a kid. I wanted to have friends. I wanted to like a girl. I wanted to do things that most young people do. But unfortunately, I wasn't allowed that. So, you know, the people around me made such a big deal of it. For me, I I would love to have, I would have loved to have been friends with everybody, but it just was not allowed. So yeah, I was forced to understand how my blackness was offensive and it was it was going to be a problem and not just me but my brother would get beat up my i had a foster sister at the time she would actually help us cuz she was much older but she would get harassed my mother would get harassed my dad would have to come in with his gun and try to bring some type of peace and try to make sure that they wouldn't you know abuse us more and my dad wasn't living with us but he would come to the house and try to restore some type of order. So it was, it was, it was a tough learning lesson at a young age that there is some hatred in this world that is, um, is very, very debilitating and traumatic. 
And I mean, I mean that that type of behaviour is absolutely abhorrent. I think we're all aware of that now. But I mean, you you still remain a positive person, and and I wonder. I mean, you, just even now talking about like the the love side as well. You know, it just when did did it make you feel like when you found did you find Arrested Development when you were when you were younger, or were you in other bands before before that? I was in other groups before that. So like I had a crew called attack and that was my high school rap crew. And we released a record and we pressed it up ourselves. It was with no kind of record label and we, it did really well in Milwaukee. You know, a lot of Milwaukee people love that music and you know, we had some successes. So I knew, you know, that I had some type of skill set. but Arrested Development didn't come until I moved to Atlanta, which was, right after high school. I moved to Atlanta in 1987. I graduated in 1987. The same week I graduated, I moved to Atlanta. Did and When you found that, that group, I mean, did it make you, was there a feeling like, oh, I'm, you know, I found my people? Yes. Atlanta had a very unique reputation in America. You know, Black people obviously have a lot of oppression in America. And so, Atlanta, on the other hand, a lot of black people were like, man, there's opportunities here. There's a lot of black people that's doing well here. They're thriving. And so, you know, when I got to Atlanta, I did feel like there was hope. And I felt like there was a tribe that I could, you know, relate to. And white and black people. And, and everything in between, to be honest, you know, I felt like there was people I could relate to it. And I love that. So Atlanta has sort of stuck with me. I've been here ever since 1987. I haven't moved or lived anywhere else pretty much. It's funny you say that with the tribe stuff, because that that's kind of what I'm, I'm reading a book at the moment called Tribe by Sebastian Jung. And it's not about it's nothing to do with gender ethnicity sexuality or anything like that it's just about finding the people that you have commonality with and common grounds and ethics and and all of that and it sounded when you were talking about it there it sounded like that's when you went to atlanta that's where you found those people who have you have those commonalities with that's true especially at that time because when i was in milwaukee i started to become more what i call conscious and Conscious of my ancestry, African history, black history, things of this nature that aren't taught in schools. So I started to become more conscious. And in Milwaukee, that was tough to find a tribe that was like that. You know what I mean? So Atlanta had a lot of people like that. And so it was a vibe. And it was a, you know, like I said earlier, like a tribe. And it was a good energy. So fast forward after you, you you've gone to these these several other projects and and Arrested Development. How did it come about with the band and how did you meet everyone that you that you did? Yeah, when I first got to Atlanta, I was putting a flyer up for a DJ because I used to be a DJ, but now I started rhyming and I needed a DJ. So I saw this dude looking at the flyer in the hallway of uh, a school, a music school that I was a part of. And he was too, actually. And I asked him like, hey, you know, I see you looking at my flyer. Do you DJ? And he's like, yeah, DJ. And we just struck up this conversation. And I would later give him the 
this nickname headliner, but uh, his name is Tim. And me and Tim became best friends. And he started DJing. I would teach him a little bit of DJing skills too, because I, you know, I used to DJ. And we became just really, really best friends. And me and him used to do shows as different names. It wasn't Arrested Development. One name was Secret Society. Another name was uh, Disciples of a Lyrical Rebellion. So, you know, we were trying to figure out what we wanted to be called. And then we started doing shows under these names and we would invite people on stage. And a woman named Early Taree, who was a friend of mine that I, well, I knew her brother from Milwaukee. She came on stage. She ended up being part of the group. Uh, Moncho Ishii, she was actually a, a baby sister of a girl that we knew. She ended up being in the group. So it was just this sort of collective of people that started performing with us night after night. And it became more close knit as time went on. And then when we got a record deal, we actually had 20 people that were close knit. So we <laughs> I know. Yeah. Like we invited a lot of people on stage from painters to dancers to poets. And when we got a record deal, it was way too big of a group to go touring and to do promotional tours and, you know, to fit on a van. So we had to decide like, well, who's sort of the, the most important people that can start us off. And we decided on the six, which was myself, headliner, Razadon, Early Tariq, Baba OJ and Moncho Ishii, and that was the ones that were on the first album. And when you were starting out, what did success look like for you in terms of what did what did you aspire to, where did you aspire to get to with that group? You know, we really wanted to change the narrative of black music. So we wanted, you know, like for instance, we realized that a lot of the black communities that we saw were in a state of arrested development. So we named the group that to remind us that we wanted to change that. So we was always striving to be a group about activism, about social change, about revolution, fundamental change. All of that was stuff we wanted to do from day one. And, you know, and then from a, from a success standpoint, as far as reaching the world, the goal was to reach as many people as possible. So, you know, it was hard because the landscape in the music industry at the time, especially in hip hop, was East Coast and West Coast. There was no very highly successful down South groups, per se, at that time period. The closest thing to it was the Ghetto Boys and Two Live Crew. But Two Live Crew was from further south than us, but they were from a coastal city of Miami. So it was a little different. You know, it didn't feel like Southern vibes like how I look at Southern vibes. And then Ghetto Boys was definitely, you know, obviously they, they they did their thing. So it wasn't a lot of opportunities for Southern groups to really do things. Outcast wasn't out yet. Goody Mob, none of that stuff was out yet. Yeah, we were just hoping to reach as many people as possible, even though the odds were against us as a Southern hip hop crew. So even Arrested Development even predates, you know, when Outcast. I mean, you mentioned there before about working with Outcast and, and Erica Badu. So y- your music even predated that? Always, yeah, yeah, very much so. And what was it like when you saw, I guess, representation in the South? Because you said that there's, there was a clear divide. What, what was that? How, how did that, how was that for you? I mean, it was very intimidating. 
you know, because New York obviously is the birthplace of hip hop. So you had people from New York going crazy with the music and doing incredible stuff. And then the West Coast started really, you know, jumping off in huge ways. But the South, Arrested Development, to my nature, to my knowledge, was the first to really jump off in that huge way, followed by Crisscross, which came like basically right on the heels of us. Um, both of us did extremely well and really, to my knowledge, put the South on the map in a real, like, where everybody knew what was going on and, and, and in particular put Atlanta on the map, I should say. Yeah, I remember, it would, well, Crisscross was just such a huge, huge band at the time. I'm, I guess I've got to start by saying I'm a huge uh, outcast fan that's like uh my, one of my favorite bands of all time so how did that, that come about with with working with them well for me it was just realizing their brilliance and wanting to make sure that the music fans in atlanta got a chance to see them live so by this time arrested development was already huge and you know we won grammys and everything by then and i'm now promoting shows and just bringing some of the great acts that were coming out to Atlanta so more people can get exposed to them. So that was my role. We never worked in the studio together, although, you know, the same studio I recorded with the group with Tennessee was the same studio that Stankonia is that Outcast owned. My role was just trying to bring them, bring them to the light so more people could know who they were. So some of these some of these bands that were coming up, especially in the South, then as you mentioned, they they might have been potentially the warm up act for you. Well, the Outcast never was in particular because I didn't perform for the shows that I promoted. Like I would promote these concerts from more of a selfless place. Like you know, I would allow whoever was really hot at that time to shine. You know, and it wasn't about an Arrested Development show. It was just. My company was called Vagabond. It still is actually called Vagabond. And it was a Vagabond production. And, and everybody knew about these shows. It was always the hottest show in town. And everybody would come through and just celebrate whatever the new crew was. Like the Fugees, when they came out, we brought them to Atlanta. I believe we were the first people to bring them to Atlanta. Erica Badu. I mean, so many others just bringing these people to Atlanta for the first time. You know what I'm saying? We brought Queen Latifah. Uh, Guru, uh, Jazzmatazz, Guru, um, you know, Farside, like I said, Ben Harper, Fishbone. I mean, just so many groups, you know what I'm saying? And do you think it's more of, in, in the U.S. now, it's less of that, uh, you know, that West East. It's actually more of a all over, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But I mean, I will say the South still has it in hip hop. Like now I'm grateful that Chicago is representing, Detroit is representing. I mean, you know, so many places throughout the United States are representing very well for hip hop music. You, you mentioned obviously the bigger the the the, the bands that you play in. Uh, there, there's obviously a large amount of people that are with, that are in in the band, and you've also done your solo projects, but you also had your own solo music as well. Do you prefer working solo or in a group, and what are the differences? You know, I like both of them for different reasons. I will say, when I first started my solo career, I was scared. I, I was 
afraid because I'd only known Arrested Development. And so to do a solo career felt like I was naked. And so when I did release it, I released my first solo album in 1996, I think. And, and it didn't do well in the States, but it did extremely well overseas in Asia. And so I went to Asia and I got so much love and I needed that love because I no longer felt naked doing a solo career. I felt like it was a different side of me and I was singing more instead of rhyming and, and it was more escapism type of themes in my music. And I was able to just sing like R&B and reggae and folk music. And so it wasn't even just about hip hop all the time. So I, I loved just exploring those different musical scapes. And, and the people of Japan in particular was just so loving and so supportive. And I had the number one, like my first uh, single was called Like Marvin Gaye Said, and that went to the top of the charts in Japan, and it stayed there for seven weeks. I sold out tours there and just, you know, just so much happy and good energy, smiling faces and lovely people. So it was just a good, 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 good time. How was that for you as well? Because, I mean, you've literally scaled the globe with the band and, and yourself. I mean, Japan, Israel, South, Af- South Africa as well. Did you uh, did you grow up wanting to travel? And what did that mean for you when you were, as you said, like people in Japan were absolutely loving you? That, was that a bit of a shock? Yeah, it was a shock. And I did grow up wanting to travel. You know, being in Milwaukee, especially as a black person, I felt... I felt caged in. And so I would often like read magazines. Like there was a magazine I would always read called Essence Magazine. And I would look at the pictures and I would dream about other places that existed in the world. And I wanted to go there. And so with Arrested Development, yeah, it was um, a huge, huge, huge blessing to be able to like have an album that did well, but also was internationally accepted. So we were very rare. Like I was talking to Outcast back in the day and they were saying that they didn't go overseas for a minute. They were just touring the US and Arrested Development, we went overseas right at the top. Like, you know, we did well in the US, but we also did well in the UK or Australia. We toured there, we toured, Germany, you know, Paris, France, and, you know, so many, South Africa, I mean, so many places throughout the world. So I was very, very grateful, but it was um, a little shocking, especially to see places that didn't speak English at all. And yet they were resonating with the music and they knew the lyrics as if they spoke English, you know, so that was very surprising too. It must have been flattering as well. It was more than flattering. It was it was like it was like being hooked to a respirator. It was, it was giving me like giving me breath. It was giving me life. You know, it was, it was amazing. Why do you think? I mean, you said there with the with Outcast, they didn't they didn't kind of do the traveling for a minute. But it's why do you think some bands choose to not do that and some do? Like in terms of the traveling around and and and, and doing the touring abroad. I think, ironically, some music resonates more overseas than other music. So, like, we were getting invited to go overseas, and I think at the early stages, Outkast wasn't. So, 
I think the style of stuff that we released had more sensibilities musically that moved people in Africa, for instance, and it moved people in London and they got it. You're a religious man as well. And I, and I wonder, did, did choir music play a big part in your life growing up and, and how does it compare to being in a band to a, to a choir? Well, for me, I don't consider myself religious at all, actually. I am spiritual, though. I believe in God. I've always believed in God. But I didn't adhere to any kind of religious doctrines, per se, until 1996. So pretty late, much later in my life, did I really start adhering to anything, you know, specific. And um, growing up, church was a part of my life, but not because I wanted it to be. It was mainly because my grandmother was super religious and spiritual. And my mother was religious. And, you know, it's just part of black culture. You know, a lot of black people grew up going to church, especially during my generation. It was a very big deal. So... It influenced me to hear that soulful choir music, that great organ sound, just this raw, untapped, untouched expression. But I don't think I liked any of it um, like directly until I got older and I started to really study the, the holy scriptures of the Bible, for instance, and started to learn about Jesus and really starting to understand who he was and what his whole movement was on earth and in heaven. So that was totally later in my life. And you, it, even just talking through some of the genres that you do like, it's, it's not just one for you. I mean, it, it's the, obviously, as you said, like you're listening to the, the soul music, there's the hip hop, there's the, the rap, all having different influences. What were you listening to when you were when you were growing up? Yeah, because my dad owned a nightclub, I got all types of records. My dad would get promotional copies of records and vinyl records, and they would come to the house, and he would let me sort through them and decide what stuff the DJs at his club should, you know, should be able to be able to play if they wanted to play it. So. It was great because I listened to everything from Marvin Gaye, The Spinners, Gap Band, Barquets, Radio, Ray Parker Jr. Radio, um, Blue Note music even, uh, jazz music, Lee Morgan, I mean, Herbie Hancock, The Headhunters. I mean, so much great music, great, 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 great music. And I thank my dad because he got all these promotional copies. So I used to just get everything before it was even released, you know. So it must have been was, great as a kid, just getting free oh, choice. It was amazing, man. I mean, I fell in love with music. I just would sit and listen to the record. I'd put the record cover in front of me and I'd get a big bowl of cereal <laughs> and pour some milk in it and just, just escape you know i would dream dream about everything whatever the music was about i just start dreaming about it that's amazing are you still a record collector now not as much now i more so listen to streaming but it's only because of 
convenience. You know, it's not it's not because I prefer it. I would prefer going to a record store and I love the smell of the record store. I love going through the vinyl, playing it and just letting that be part of my day. But I don't have the the luxury as much anymore because time is, you know, needed and I, I need to keep moving and there's a lot of things that I'm doing. So I just don't have time to do it. I wish I did though. Yeah, it's uh, there is, and that's it, isn't it? It's it's the ease of convenience that, that the streaming is, but almost pretty much everyone would like the idea of the touch and the feel and the, you know, what's in what's inside the record, you know, the promotional stuff that you get, like the posters, etc., or details about the band. I think people would all always choose that if if it wasn't for convenience especially people of our generation. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I think the new generation probably doesn't have any nostalgic feelings like I do, but oh my gosh, I miss that. I miss it so much. And I feel like music is missing so much because of the lack of those things. Uh, I I agree. (laughs) I can't say any more than that. But when you were coming up, how was getting Band of the Year by by Rolling Stones or, or, or Rolling Stone magazine or, or or any of the awards and and at the time who did you beat and were you kind of like wow we we beat them or did you go in thinking oh we've got a really good chance here are you talking about like at the Grammys yeah well I guess both I guess it's double edged so there's there's the Grammys but there's I mean that that's how big you were I mean you just said which one which one is it because you won so many awards who did yeah. who were you beating at the time and 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 were you thinking like we stood a good chance or when you got it, were you just, were you, were you shocked? You know, what's funny about that time period is we were part of a very foreign record industry machinery. So like it was foreign to us, like we're a new group. We never been on a record label. We're from Atlanta. We didn't have any peers that were blowing up before us. And so here we are, we're doing our music, we're touring the nation, we're working our tails off, we're going to homeless shelters to talk to the homeless in the morning, and we're doing sound check and a show at night. We're going to the projects, the poor areas in the communities, and talking about black empowerment and self-esteem and you know, freedom. And then we go do sound check and go do a show. And then we go to these award shows. And it's a totally different world. And so all of this was happening at the same time for us. So I think I can speak for myself. It was very surreal. It was almost like it wasn't real for us because, yeah, we were performing on these big stages and the Grammys and interviews and meeting all of these celebrities, Michael Jackson, Madonna, you know, all of these amazing celebrities but it was so fast paced that it was hard to recognize it at the time. So even getting band of the year with Rolling Stone and getting band of the year um, or album or artist of the year or artists, best new artists with the Grammys, it was all just this blur at the time. And then after that, we realized how big it all was when we had a chance to breathe. And I think it was probably like 94 or 95 when we had a chance to really like, now let's take all of this in. 
And that's when we started to see the beauty of getting a Grammy and getting two at that. The beauty of being Band of the Year with Rolling Stone, such a prestigious, you know, magazine. I mean, all of that became aware to us later as opposed to in the moment, I think. And I'd imagine, you know, if you're in your 20s, 30s, uh, or even in your in your 40s, I guess, is the pace in which you would be, I mean, it's it, it's a churn and burn industry. You would have been passed around like a piece of meat, probably, like the, um, just doing interview after interview, and you would probably be doing 10, 20 um, uh, gigs a week at some point. I, I mean, I'd, I imagine it's hard to be in the moment. It is very hard to be in the moment, and especially when it's your first rodeo. So, like, when it's your first time around the block, all of it is so new. So I I compare it to, like, parenting. So, like, anybody, like, do you have any kids? I don't, know. Not that I know of. Well, <laughs> yeah. So, like, when people have their first child, they're super-duper, like, um aware of every single thing the child is doing. Like if the child stops breathing, you know, for just a millisecond, everyone's scared and, you know, you're just really <laughs> hypersensitive. And then by the time you have your second child, you feel like a veteran at it and you get it and you get that if your child falls, it's going to be all right. So I say all of that to say, like for the first time around, it's so blurry that you you can't celebrate it because it's it's too fast for you. But then, like the second time you start getting these types of records, you can you can appreciate it differently because you're you've done it before. It's like okay, I get this, and everything becomes more fun in a sense. I mean, you, you now can have the opportunity to think about it. But I mean, first for for the Grammy wise, first hip hop artist to win the award that's pretty fucking cool. It's amazing. It's amazing, you know, and I'm grateful, you know, for that type of honor. Yeah. And I mean, not even just the, the awards. I mean, if you think of actual factual evidence and in, in terms of numbers, over 6 million copies of your album is insane. Uh, how was that for you? And uh, I mean, as they were, as it was racking up, you must've just been like, ah, oh, this is the golden ticket here. It totally was again, mind blowing and a little surreal. Like I was high or something as if I was on acid, it just felt so unreal. And, you know, just seeing people sing along to the music, as you travel throughout the world, it just blows your mind. And you know where you made this music, you know why you wrote this song, and then to see people from different cultures relate to it as if they were in your mind when you wrote it, it just, I love that. And it feels so endearing to the art of music and to the power of music. And especially as a conscious group that talks about social issues at times and that makes it even more special because a lot of groups like that don't get that same type of success. I mean, some do, but a lot don't. Yeah, I did read um, about the other, I mean, obviously politics and just getting a message out there has always been the, uh, it seems like it's still a common theme in your life uh, now. And I've read 
a few parts about a couple of political projects that you're part of. I mean, there's the, the campaign with Al Gore, and then there's an Israel and Palestine freedom project as well. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about them and how you got involved, and and what other and why why it means so much for you to to kind of spread that, spread that message. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me personally, being involved as much as I can came from that whole my mom being in the newspaper world and just you know, her trying to get information out there and to empower people, you know, and my dad too. So getting involved with Al Gore was really started by me being involved with Hillary Clinton. The Clintons were, Bill Clinton was president. His wife was doing a book. She asked me to come on a tour with her to do music for this book tour she was doing and i did al gore was there i got a chance to meet him vibe with him vibe of course with hillary clinton and then later i would do more stuff with barack obama when he was just senator barack obama and the things that i've done in israel with the palestinian crisis and is and is really you know trying to bring people together all of these things just to me seem like obvious choices and then more recently, I did a documentary where I went into a jail and did music with inmates, and I call it 16 Bars. It's on YouTube. It's on you know Hulu and some of the streaming services out there. And it's Definitely been, go and check it out. It's really cool. Yeah, it's an award-winning. Uh, we've won over 30 awards on that, on that documentary. And I did another documentary called The N-Word Factory. It's on YouTube. It's very compelling, very straightforward, hard-hitting. And it's gotten well over a million views in different locations. So I'm just really excited about, you know, just continuing to make music and projects that, that have a purpose, you know, other than just to entertain, but it has something deeper than that, too. Is that does that come down to your spiritual side as well? I mean, I think a lot, there's a there's a lot of uh, interviews that you can watch on any uh, person in the entertainment industry. There's a lot of them that do have that feeling like it's a little bit empty sometimes. The entertainment side of things, like they're not getting the fulfillment. Whereas you've not only get the fulfillment of. I guess, bringing people joy in that moment and that they're listening to your music or they're seeing your music. But you also get from a, from a spiritual level, you're actually probably, there's a lot of these things that you're doing that you're, you're putting out that you're using your own fame as a, as a platform to, to showcase something that matters to you and and the, and the world really in, in some regards. Yeah, definitely. I do. And it is exciting. It's, it's fulfilling. And at times it's like, like you're in heaven. I mean, because there's such a communion or a camaraderie with people around the world that relate to what you are doing or striving to do. And it just feels outstanding, you know, but then there's other times when it feels lonely because being in the industry for over 30 odd years there's phases in this industry where being a conscious group is the most sexy thing ever and you're winning awards. And then there's other phases where being a conscious group is the dumbest thing anyone could ever do. Like it absolutely holds no value in people's minds and hearts. And so, you you know, I've been around long enough to see all of those different shades of 
how people were are, are wanting their music or entertainment at the time. And so it, it can be lonely and, and very exciting. And I guess, it, again, there's a it, it's difficult because, I mean, especially now, people get their heads turned a lot quicker to, other, to something else. You know, if it's not this, then it's something else. Yeah, exactly. And that is very different, too, like from a, the different phases of of my career that I've seen, like, you know, there was a slower pace and there also was a more devoted pace in the past where if you really love a band, you're looking forward to their next album and then their next album and then their next album. Whereas right now there is some artists that get that type of loyalty, but a lot of artists don't. And a lot of artists unfortunately may not even be discovered. Even if they release a new album, it may not be known to the public that the album's out and, I've seen both sides of that coin and it's tough, you know, because there's so much music out there. I mean, you mentioned with the streaming services, um, I mean, isn't there, there's something else. Uh, there's forgetify as well as Spotify as well. Isn't there where the music that isn't actually put on Spotify that you should definitely listen to as well. It's so difficult to know what to use and, and how to, I mean, I'd imagine it's even harder for bands to kind of even just promote their music these days. I think it's much harder to be discovered, not literally discovered, but for your new music to be discovered today than it was when there was more of a system behind the music. So there's pluses of today, which is you don't need a label to release anything. You could release it by yourself. I could release a song tonight if I wanted to, but the second side of that is making sure that the whole world gets to celebrate it at the same time. That's tough. And and there's so many new genres being created as well, as well. So it's like kind of constant, this constant evolution, which I mean, it's just natural anyway, but it seems everything's a lot more attainable. So you have a lot more media sources. I mean, you, you talking about media is, is, is something that you really love and you learn from your mum. but it's, there's just, there's almost too many options. I think there is too many options because there's no, there's no true community of people or large community, I should say. There is small tribes here and there. And that has its own special vibe. But as far as trying to move the world together at one point, I think it's a lot harder to do now than it used to be. Yeah. And talking of genres, what what would you, you describe Arrested Development's music as? We started off calling it life music, and I still feel like that's what it is. And it was an answer to death music. There's so much music talking about death and talking about killing other people, talking about, you know, degrading, you know, women and so on and so forth. So we call it life music initially. On our first flyers before we were signed, we we called it like folk, reggae, hip hop, funk, you know, and then we just called it life music. But I think at the end of the day, Arrested Development is hip hop to me. It's all hip hop. 
Yeah, with the, I mean, it's it, there could be an argument. There's a little bit of neo soul in there as well, but I think it's just almost it's 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 almost a subgenre in itself. And I think you've probably epitomised that by saying it's live music. Yeah, I mean, you know, the term neo soul wasn't even out when we were releasing, so I know what you mean. But I think, like, you know, I think that hip hop has to be allowed to be diverse. So like De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising album had so many different genres in that record, you know, or even Public Enemy's Yo Bum Rush to Show album had elements of rock and, you know, sort of this just the way it was mixed and the soundscapes that they were using had elements of punk and, you know, just very unusual for what would later become known as hip-hop so i feel like hip-hop at its best is diverse you have everything from ll cool j and def jam with just like beats 808 kicks and snares and clap sounds but then you got something is radically different than that as de la soul's three feet high and rising or you know public enemies yo bum rush to show and beastie boys you know ill communication or or paul's boutique or whatever you know like hip-hop needs to be diverse to me and i personally i feel like all of it is hip-hop from planet patrol you know and africa bambata and the soul sonic force planet rock all the way to egyptian lover on the west coast and you know the world-class wrecking crew with dr dre back before nwa like all of that music to Mantronics and Man Parish, like all of this music is hip hop. And so I feel like Arrested Development fits within that broader scheme of what hip hop music is. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, De, De La Salle, what an album that was. But um, I mean, even if you think of some of the other bands that, I mean, their music could be pigeonholed into a certain area, but it's not, it's not a definition really i mean tribe tribe called quest probably and and j5 as well they 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 do have there's something else to them and i feel like arrested development's that as well i agree with all of that yeah i do yeah i wonder with that in mind i mean mixing two genres the the remix of people every day did you get that sent to you and did it add another dimension to the track is it is it nice when people remix uh, a track and you're like oh actually this do you, do you get the, oh, this sounds better? Or do you kind of a little bit like, hey, that's that's kind of my track? <laughs> no, like, well, it's funny. I, I used to be against remixes. So, like, back in the first album days, I produced the album. Like, I produced the three years, five months, two days album. And so, you know, when I did the original version of People Every Day, which is a slower version, I initially did my own remix of it that was like for the single it was the slow version that is on the initial album I think it's like the third or fourth song on the initial album and then I did a reggae version called the maroon mix and then yeah as far as remixes it was very rare that I had someone else remix stuff so the people that I'm proud of is like showbiz from showbiz and ag he remixed tennessee i love that mix i love dj premier's mix of ease my mind 
I produced an album for a group called Gumbo, and Marley Ma did a remix of a song called Free Soul that is beautiful. You know, and these are some of my favorite producers anyway. So those are some examples of remixes that I really liked. On the other hand, there was a remix of Mr. Wendell that's a house remix that was hugely popular. And no offense to the remixer, I forget his name. I hated that mix. And so generally speaking, remixes weren't something that I was very cool with early on and i've become a lot more cool with it over the years yeah it it's it when it works it works that's it <laughs> yeah exactly when it works it works like now you know like our la- our latest album is called don't fight your demons and it's a beautiful powerful record and i worked with an artist named configure and he did remixes you know for that record and I love those remixes. And he's done remixes for me with my my newest solo album, which is called Expansion. He did remixes on that, and it's, they're beautiful. So I, I, you're right. When it works, it works. But when it doesn't work, for me at least, I hate it. But I still, you know, I allow the labels to put it out because, for instance, uh, the Mr. Wendell remix really does well, like in the dance clubs, and it has for decades now. And I hate it, but. A lot of people love it, and it's all good. I've learned to appreciate that, you know. That, it's funny as well that you mentioned the summertime thing because I don't think I think, you know, growing up. Uh, well, I'm from the the UK in Brighton, and we, you, you know, it's a small window of summer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. a couple of weeks, and I don't think that would not be on anyone's. Well, it, it would be on every single person's uh, summer playlist just because it is. A, it's just a feel good song it's hard not to feel good good about it i love that yeah i love that and i'm glad because this particular it was like a one bar loop but i was like this feels like heaven to me it felt so good and i was like i cannot wait till i get home i threw it into a mp60 it was actually my neighbor's mp60 i threw that record in there i looped it threw my drums on it redid the vocals group got on there, did their vocals, and it just felt like everything, man. I was just so proud of the way it felt. And uh, mixing in the reggae with the da-ba-ba-ba and the whoa, it just had all the elements of a good, happy summer, you know, and I, that's that to me is what that song still reminds me of. And it's so difficult to, to, to do that, to create that specific feel everyone is always looking for you know when the sun starts coming out i mean we had one uh, jungle busy earning and that was one for a couple of summer times where we were listening to it non-stop and it's just it's so difficult i know childish gambino had that one that came out in the last this is eight America. yeah no no the uh, what's the summertime summertime sadness or whatever it was um, okay yes 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 yeah uh-huh. and, and and it's hard to replicate that feel good music for for summer yeah i agree it is it's not easy to to get that right mixture you know what i mean it's that certain mixture that just feels right and speech we're coming to the end of the episode and i just kind of uh, thank you for joining us really appreciate it and i just wanted to see the last question uh, really is is what you're looking forward to uh, to most when the world is kind of fully open is it new music travel connection family that's a great question i mean for me personally 
just being more grateful for all the little things because I think I'll have like a brand new colorful lens as I look at the world, you know, just being appreciative of all the small stuff that we can now do without hesitation, you know, that's what I'm looking forward to. I, I want to be a totally different speech. So when this, when the world totally opens up again, I want to be a new person. I want to see things 100% differently and be more joyful, more grateful, and more appreciative of the small stuff. I think we could all learn a bit of that, I think, uh, from, from this speech. Thomas, it's been great um, having you on, and I really appreciate you taking the time. No doubt, man. Thank you. Thank you.